This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wyson. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC Campfires is brought to you by DSC, the Dallas Safari Club, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, the callingest call made. Double Nickel Taxidermy, where hunting memories are preserved. Now, here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Last week, we had the opportunity to talk a little bit about mule deer hunting and some of the mule deer hunts that I've been on in the past. Talked some about the first mule deer is shot. and It's that time of the year where it's, you really need to start thinking about mule deer if you're going to try to hunt mule deer this year. You know, when I started hunting mule deer, oh my gosh, a very long time ago, there weren't such things as drawings or limited entry or any of those other kind of things. We had tremendous mule deer populations. People hunted kind of where they wanted to. And if, if today you wanted to go hunting mule deer and the mule deer season started in three days, you simply drove to the state that you wanted to hunt and bought a license across the counter and went out and hunted public land or possibly even a little bit of private land. and. There was a said a good mule deer population. Well, over the years, things have changed. Human populations have increased dramatically. A lot of what used to be mule deer habitat now is human habitation. A lot of the uh, corridors through which deer migrated, and, and the thing about Rocky Mountain mule deer is, is they have a tendency to have a kind of a summer fall range and then a winter range and. During the uh, summertime, uh, I should say, I guess they're up in the, in the mountains and where there's a lot of food and all those kind of things. And I kind of messed that up a little bit there. But during the summer, they were in the mountains. Now, when the snows came and the ice came and started driving those deer out of the mountains, they had to go somewhere where there was something to eat. I remember years ago, I took care of a ranch in the very northwest corner of Colorado where the Yampa and the Little Snake River come together, essentially, just right there on the... Uh, Wyoming-Utah border. At the right time, when the snows got really bad in the northern part of, of uh, or just north of us up in the mountains of Wyoming and parts of Utah, those deer would come through there, those being migratory mule deer. They'd, I'd see as many as maybe as three or four come through in a little group, and then you'd see 10 or 15 and then 20. And occasionally you'd see a herd of, of maybe as many as 50, 60, or more, even up to 100 sometimes come through that ranch going to the lower country down in the National, uh, or the Dinosaur National Monument area where 
there was plenty food for them. They could make the winter. And uh, once the winter was over with, then they'd start drifting back up into the higher country and, and uh, spend the summer time there, late spring, summer, early fall maybe. And then as soon as the winters came, here they came again. So what's happened in a lot of those areas where previously we've had migratory mule deer, the uh, quarter, if you will, has been blocked to some extent by housing developments, by Oh my gosh, by by fences, by so many different things. And and one of the things that's happened over the years is thankfully through organizations like the Mule Deer Foundation, they have gone in in some instances they've bought some of the property, they've leased some of the property, they have built overpasses and underpasses across highways that uh, allow these deer to cross without being a, a traffic problem. And things are really starting to turn around a little bit. I recently had the opportunity to visit a little bit with Greg Simons. Now, Greg, we've talked a lot about in the past, and I've had him on the show, and, and will again in the future. Greg, this past year, shot a, or a couple of years ago, rather, in 2019, shot a West Texas mule deer, the crook eye species that we've talked about, that he called Hank, of all names. And uh, that deer grossed over 300 and netted like 292 and some change, making it the biggest desert mule deer highest scoring i guess i should say desert mule deer ever ever recorded and uh i, I was asking with asking him i said greg that that property that you manage and i had actually shot my first mule deer almost within sight of of where greg shot his this big buck and i said what are the three or four major things that you do on that property and it was interesting because a lot of what he suggested is things that I've done on the same ranches that I've dealt with over the years from mule deer. And one of the things that he mentioned was is uh, is grazing pressure. So many places we've overgrazed uh, with livestock, and that could be in some instances out in that western part of the country for a while. It was wild horses, horses, uh, those wild horses and burros. They would take over water holes, which is another important factor in, in mule deer and other wildlife species out there. But they take over the water holes. And the thing about mute, the, uh, <clears throat> the horses and donkeys is, is they have teeth on the top and bottom. So they can reach all the way to the bottom of that plant. And when they eat, they may pull the entire plant out. Whereas like cattle or goats or, or sheep, they have only teeth on the lower side, inside, in the front. And uh, so they have a little bit more of a difficult time to, to really grub those plants out like horses do. But so horses, cattle, sheep, goats, all those, if, if they're overgrazed, if they're overutilized that range, it, it takes away the primary species that are there. And, and as a result of that, there's a, a, a lack of food. So grazing pressure can be really good too because the hoof action, it can stir up the soil. Grazing from livestock or years ago with buffalo, what would happen when there were buffalo in that country, the buffalo would come through, eat everything down, they'd leave. And all these little things could come up and green grass and, and green forbs and, and or weeds, if you will, those would be coming up kind of after the buffalo went through. So it was kind of a rotational grazing system that the buffalo did. And the other species such as elk and mule deer and pronghorn and those others kind of followed a lag time behind once that vegetation started coming back up again. Well, basically, that you can do the same thing with livestock. If you're going to have cattle or on the on property, the best thing to do is to set up a rotational grazing system where you have got a, a, an area that's been grazed. You pull the cattle off, things start coming back, and just kind of rotate around it over over a series of pastures. And by doing so, there's always some stage of, of good growth there for not only the cattle, but also for the, the livestock that's there. So grazing can be so very important in a positive manner and if it's overdone in a negative manner. Water. I mentioned water a while ago. One of the things that happened when we had a lot of wild horses out there in some of that western country that I used to take care of in, in Colorado is that they would just take over a water hole and chase everything else away. So that was a problem just, just in itself. But uh, one of the things that we did on the ranches that I dealt with out there for mule deer is we would 
with uh, we were private land, thankfully, and we were surrounded by a bunch of public land. Now, on the public land, there really wasn't a whole lot we could do, but on the private land, we could put in water holes, and uh, we did. We put up a whole bunch of little ponds, little tanks, and there are several ways of doing that in that uh, some of that soil is pretty porous, so that means that you get water, it's there for a short period of time, and then it just kind of absorbs into the ground. Well, there were two ways that we did to try to seal those those tanks, and we dispersed these throughout or set them up throughout the property so where that deer never really had to move more than about maybe a mile between uh, between water holes. Now, we did have water troughs as well, too, and we'll get back to that, but with, with these, what we'd do is we'd dig these little tanks, little deep holes, and kind of slope them to, so that, that the animals could walk to the water, so that it wasn't just a deep, like a pan kind of thing, or a pot. So we would dig those, and then we would, where we could, we would use bentonite, which is a lot of people refer to as, as drilling mud, but we would put bentonite in the bottom of these, and that would kind of seal those ponds. The other thing that we did on some of the shallower type ponds that we built is uh, we would use stock salt, just rock salt, if you will, and, and what happens there is that country where we were, there wasn't a whole lot of salt in that country, so salt was kind of an attractant to the, to the local cattle, the local deer, elk, whatever was there, and they would come in there and they would kind of lick on that salt, and in the process of that, they would also leave their droppings there. And over a period of time, you would farm kind of a natural seal on the bottom of this where it would eventually become water holes. And so those two worked really well. Now, both of them took a period of time. So when we did them, we looked at maybe five years from now, is we're going to have water there. The other thing is we talked about water trials. And one of the things that we did, we were fortunate. We had some uh, water in a lot of that country. Is, it comes at a very premium. It, it's very deep. And then sometimes it's got a lot of minerals and things in it but uh so what we did is we would set up water tanks meaning storage tanks and from those storage tanks we would pump those up and then gravity feed just by gravity pulling down to uh water troughs with uh floats on them that would control the water level but one of the things i did beyond that too is i always made sure that there was a small depression somewhere very close to those those uh, watering facilities for livestock because I noticed over the years that for whatever reason there may be clear water in a, in a water in a, in a water trough but if there's a little mud hole about 10 or 15 steps away from that from that clear water that's where the the, the wildlife is going to water that's where they go for water I guess it's because it's much more of a natural situation for them so we always had little overflow ponds as well too, and uh, those a lot of times I would fence with with barbed wire so to keep the cattle out of those areas to where they were specifically watering areas for wildlife. That worked really well too, and one of the things I did there as well is if I didn't have that opportunity to have those low water troughs to where even a fawn could come up and drink out of it. Uh, what I do for birds is that uh, if you had a water trough and it's kind of built like a pot and say the, the water level is, a, is an inch below that pot, well in a, in a real world situation it may be, you know, six, eight inches from a steep sided trough to where the water is. So birds can't really water in those kind of situations. They can't get the water and if they do they're probably going to fall in and, and drown. So what I would do is I'd take a two by twelve piece of wood. And I'd cut it in, in chunks about maybe, depending on the size of the water trough, anywhere from 12 to maybe 18 inches long. To the bottom of that, I would put a nail, and uh, on, on the bottom side of, of a board, I'd put a nail, put a, a chain or wire, and I would attach that to a, a, an anchor. And my anchors were generally one to two pound coffee cans that I'd filled with concrete and put a little hook in there where I could hook a chain from that uh, floating 
structure, if you will, that piece of wood to the bottom so they wouldn't float all over the place. That allowed those birds to light upon that platform and drink. And tell you what, it made a lot of difference, particularly in those areas where we were concerned about setting up or could not set up the, the little overflow type ponds. Now, some of the western areas that I've dealt with in uh, Texas and New Mexico, we built what we call guzzlers. And basically what a guzzler is, is a metal platform. Uh, we've used all kinds of different types of, of tins and all that kind of thing. And, and uh, so you create almost like a roof and not quite sloped as much as what a roof is. And then you have a central gathering point, kind of where you put gutters on the sides to where all the water that hits on that platform, if you will, runs into a gutter, which goes into a storage tank, which goes into an area from there to where animals can water, a little low on the ground type of water troughs. So every time that it rains, guess what? Water, rain hits the, 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 the platform, if you will, or the tin, runs off. And so you can gather lots of, a lot of moisture that way and, and with it set up properly with a little float to where an animal or nothing else can get to it, uh, you can have water for a long period of time. Uh, sometimes too, just the dew that, that forms on these. And when you have temperature changes, there's enough there to where you get a little bit of a runoff to where it goes in the storage tank. We've used these quite extensively, and as I said, in the western part of the state of Texas, but also elsewhere and in, down in Mexico where there's really not a whole lot of subsurface moisture or water. So you're depending upon whatever rainfall there is so that you've got, uh, got drinking water for the animals. But these have worked really, really well. And organizations like uh, the Mule Deer Foundation has been very instrumental in helping with these. And, and the DSC Foundation, the Dallas Fire Club Foundation, has funded numerous of these projects like down in Mexico and in uh, western Texas and they're used extensively in ports of New Mexico and Arizona and, and those guzzlers have done extremely well as far as providing moisture or water for, for animals and the beauty of it is you can set them up almost anywhere so you can scatter them across the country depending on what the populations are you can have them, you know, relatively close if there's lots of them, or you can have them great distance talking about lots of animals or scatter them quite a distance apart to where there's not a whole lot of animals in that area, but you're dispersing them over a larger area that way as well, too, rather than concentrating all those animals to one water hole, which kind of in, in a big area when you do that sometimes. You know, if it's it's like setting up a grocery store. If you set up a grocery store in a, in an area, and uh, guess where the predators? In in those instances, maybe we're predators on the grocery stores. If you want to look at it that way, that's where the predators congregate. And so you you want to set these up over a larger area, and that brings up predators. The the third thing that we did on the ranches that I've dealt with, and same thing with envisioning with. Uh, with Greg Simons, who I have great respect for as a wildlife biologist, but also as a mule deer hunter and, and somebody who really cares about wildlife, is uh, one of the things Greg has done in a lot of the ranches that he has managed, particularly for mule deer, is to control predators. Now, that does not mean the annihilation of predators, because I don't think you could do that anyway. If you set up the idea that I am going to get rid of every coyote, every bobcat, every mountain lion, it would not happen because those animals learn how to adapt to those kind of pressures very quickly and, and uh, they avoid traps, they avoid coming to calls and all those other kind of things. But predator control can be very, very important, particularly in those years when you have a relatively hard drought going into the, the, the fawning season, if you will. If there's a lot of vegetation on the ground, it's a little bit harder for those for those uh, coyotes and bobcats to see those those fawns and uh, so what we try to do on so many different ranches and as this is being recorded I'm getting ready to go on a on a predator hunt with Gary Robertson who with Burnham Brothers calls with their rogue call that he came up with that we'll visit a little bit here in the next couple of weeks because we're going to try to set up 
some of the podcast as if we are in the field, which we're actually going to be, but one of the ranches that I deal with that I get to hunt is the Hargrove Ranch. It's called, the, on the, as far as internet type stuff, you want to learn more about it, it's called Hargrove Hunts, H-A-R-G-R-O-V-E-H-U-N-T-S dot com. And I think that's the Facebook as, as well, too, and you can learn more about it. They have both whitetail and mule deer, and really we're trying to increase the mule deer population in that area. This is an area kind of south of Lubbock in the lower edge of the of the Texas Panhandle. But we're going to be out there trying to call coyotes this next week and uh, trying to reduce that coyote population before the fawns start hitting the ground, and that means before they're being born. So uh, predator control to me is, is extremely important two times of the year in that when the uh, the fawns, right before the fawns are being born, and then two, in late winter when um, a lot of times if you get a buck, particularly a mature buck, it's run a lot, he's chased a lot, he gets run down. Those coyotes are are serious predators on those on those on those kind of deer and you want to give them the opportunity to get back on their feet again because they may be the ones that you're looking for and in any kind of herd whether it's hunted or not you want a good distribution of young bucks medium age bucks and old age bucks and to do that predator control becomes an important thing as well too now one of the things that we have in mule deer herds are mule deer habitat in in texas and new mexico and i suspect maybe even i know in in parts of of mexico as well too is we have feral hogs now there's no doubt that feral hogs particularly those that weigh say 120 pounds or or even larger that uh that they will eat fawns quite frankly they will we did some work many many years ago i did where i shot 20 big hogs out of a helicopter. This is when we first started doing helicopter things like that. And 18 out of the 20 hogs that I shot had the remains of whitetail fawns in them. So it tells me where you've got a high population of wild hogs, they're probably predators on, on fawns. And in West Texas or in mule deer habitat, desert mule deer habitat, where those hogs exist, yes, if there's an opportunity for them to, to find a, what, a mule deer fawn, of course, they're going to kill it and eat it. They're very much opportunists, kind of like coyotes are. So all that kind of complicates. So when I start talking about predator control on some of the ranches that I deal with, not in the Rocky Mountains so much, but particularly in the, from the desert variety of, of mule deer, the control of, of feral hogs is, is a part of that predator control too. We talked a little bit about things eating hog, hogs eating deer rather, and, and some of the things that, that eat the, the fawns, but let's talk a little bit more about hunting. I, I, to me, as I've said before, there's hardly anything that I can think of that's more impressive than a really big mule deer buck, and I'm talking about a buck that's approaching that 30 inches wide or wider and he's almost as tall as he is wide and he's real massive his antlers are as thick around as what his ears butts are and and uh because when he turns his head standing on a ridge to me it's not like he's turning his head it's like the world revolves down below him when I was a little bitty kid, uh, my uncles, and there's not so much my uncles, a couple of my uncles, but a lot of my, my cousins hunted uh, Colorado, and, and my first sight of a mule deer was on the back of a pickup that uh, my dad's first cousin, Crockett Linebacker, brought by the house to show us. And I remember that deer being way outside of his ears and tall and I mean, I was just absolutely, totally impressed, enthralled, and all those things by the sight of that deer. And at the time, I was about six years old, and I resolved that, you know, one of these days, one of these days, I'm going to go hunt mule deer. Where it, it took a while to do that, but thankfully, I was able to hunt mule deer and, and uh, been able to hunt them a lot of several different places and have a few more places I'd really like to return to to go hunt them. When it comes to firearms, I've, I've hunted them with, uh, not so much with bows, I've hunted them with a bow a little bit years and years ago. But remember, I think I may have told you that when I'm asked about, you know, about being a bow hunter, my, my response generally is, yeah, I bow hunted. <laughs> and then I grew up. 
Well, actually, I shot my last deer with a bow in 1984, so that's quite a few years ago. But uh, I hunted them a little bit with a bow years ago, and, and also hunted them with rifles, muzzleloaders, and, and handguns. The the best desert mule deer I ever shot, I shot with a, my Ruger uh, Super Blackhawk Hunter 44 mag with a 240 grain XTP Hornady ammo, which that particular 44 mag absolutely loves. At 100 yards, it'll keep all shots, all six shots, in a little over an inch group if I do my part. If I kind of slip around a little bit and don't do everything, it's still at 100 yards going to shoot less than about a four inch group, which is pretty darn good when you get right down to it. It just simply means that if I'm going to hunt mule deer with it, I need to be within 100 yards or so of one. And that's always my intention anyway, is try to get as close as I can. But over the years, I've shot them with a muzzleloader. I used to do a fair amount of hunting with a night rifle with an MK85 uh, or versions of it with Tony Knight and uh, Jim Zumbo. And then for years, too, I did the PR work for Thompson Center Arms. And as a result of that, I shot and hunted with uh, the TC Encore and, and two or three of the other muzzleloaders that we had, but uh, those are always fun. And, and again, and my shots, I limited myself to about 100, 125 yards, even though I knew I could make a shot longer than that. But that was just kind of my self-imposed limit. Shot my first mule deer, I think I told you last time, uh, with a 300 Savage. Now, at the, at the time of that hunt, my gun that I had was a 3030 Winchester, and even though there have been tons and tons of deer and probably elk killed with a 3030 Winchester, I really felt like I needed something with a little bit more oomph, if you will. Well, as it worked out, my brother had bought a gun that was a Savage Model 99 lever action, 300 Savage, had a, a, a K4 Weaver scope on it, and uh, I borrowed it for that first hunt to shoot my first mule deer with. And over the years, I have shot them with a lots of different calibers. Uh, a lot of them with a 270, a lot of them with a 30 out six, a lot with a uh, with even the the 300 Win Mag with the old 405 Winchester. Shot one with a 405 Winchester out in West Texas several years ago. I shot several out there because Texas had just started the managed land program and. One of the things that we were able to do is to uh, to take more than one mule deer uh, on, on special permits, and so uh, I was able to take some some deer with 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 that and like far corns and that were really old and ended up shooting a really nice uh, buck one of those years that I hunted out there on that particular ranch with that 405 Winchester in a single shot at about 200 yards. And I had shot that gun a fair amount and I knew where it hit at different ranges. So that's what made the difference. And I couldn't get any closer. That was the problem. I, I, I love to get as close as I can regardless of what I'm shooting. And in that instance, I, I shot that 405 with a 300 grain uh, soft point from Hornady that uh, I knew exactly where that thing hit. I'd actually shot it out to 500 yards as well, too, just kind of on a whim to see where I could, or what I could do at 500 yards. And surprisingly, that particular gun shot reasonably well at 500. Now, would I have shot a deer at that distance? No, no way, no, no, no way. I, I didn't feel like I had sufficient downrange energy to really do any good at that distance, but, uh, you know, if it came down to, to a, a favorite round and a, a few years ago, Ruger came out with a, uh, a 280 Ackley Improved as kind of a through, uh, called the Joe Clayton, kind of Joe Clayton special. Joe Clayton really kind of started collecting Ruger number ones years ago and, and uh, he was one of the first guys. And so to honor him, they, they did this Lee Newton, uh, who's a dear friend and a collector of Ruger number ones and does a lot of work with Ruger number ones, suggested they do this Joe Clayton special in the 280 Ackley Improved, which is Joe's favorite caliber. So in the process of honoring Joe, they also found some unbelievably beautiful wood. Well, I was able to get like the third or fourth one of those out of a pick out of the whole bunch. Actually, it was a uh, 
Joe Clayton and, and Lee Newton that, that picked out this particular gun for me. And so I thought, you know what, that'd be the ideal one to use. And I ended up doing a story about it for uh, Gun, Gun Digest, uh, 2020 Gun Digest, or 21 maybe. And uh, absolutely gorgeous wood, but uh, used the used a horny load in that one. And uh, hunting with Greg Simons on this property where he, he shot Hank, I was there to shoot a management buck and finally able to put a really nice ancient, ancient old buck down. He was massive, probably only about a 15 inch spread or so, but he'd seen his better days and was on his way down and it was the appropriate thing to do is to, to take him and and, uh, uh, and so I kind of honored him, I guess, by taking him and, and writing stories about it and putting his antlers on the wall. And of course, mule deer venison, particularly if they're eating good stuff. Now, if they're on strictly one plant and don't have a whole lot of other, they can be a little bit uh, rank at times or during the, the rut, but uh, this particular old buck had not been chasing any at all. I don't think he was beyond that stage. So the meat was sweet and tender and quite the opposite of what you might think off of a really big old buck like that. But uh, nonetheless, he was extremely good to eat. Hunted with a 30 out 6 and a 270 down in Mexico, down in Sonora. Uh, those burro deer down there have a tendency to turn into beautiful animals. They have a fair amount of mass. Uh, the antlers do and with a lot of widespread and these days probably if, if you're looking for an opportunity to hunt really big mule deer or you don't have to go through possibly years and years of getting preference points and being drawn to hunt particular areas Snore is probably the, the the best place to go to you know there's there there are two different types of hunts down in Snore and that They've started some breeding programs down there and a lot of times they'll have a breeding herd and then they'll release those animals into a huge enclosure, if you will, or just into open range. And then they're, they're the open range hunts as well too. The ones that I've been able to hunt down there have been on the open range. And, and even though I've, I've seen some really outstanding deer, I hunted down there one year with uh, Tri-State Outfitters with, uh, it used to be run by Richard Petrini, uh, now it's run by Bridger Petrini, his son. It's Tri-State Outfitters. And, and uh, Bridger set up a hunt for me down there with with an old dear friend of his who was one of the trackers years ago. They would, hunting mule deer in, in Sonora, they would get on a track and follow that track until they found that deer. And then you'd make a decision as to whether or not you wanted to shoot him or not. Well, I got to hunt with one of these trackers and, and we did. We we would find a track and we would get on a track. And unfortunately, hunting that method, everyone that we were able to get onto was just a, a nice deer, not what that area is known for. But while I was there, I saw three outstanding deer. All three of them, no doubt in my mind, were well over 200. Two of them were non-typicals, and one of them was a huge, huge typical, the, the biggest typical I've ever seen. But uh, in the process of all that, toward the end of the, of the hunt, I ended up taking a really nice mule deer, probably about 28 inches wide with decent mass. If you had to score, and he was probably one of those ones, uh, probably 180 class deer, but just absolutely a gorgeous deer, which I am truly, truly proud of. Would I'd like to have shot one of those 200s? Well, of course I would have. That's still one of my goals, uh, to, to shoot a really, what I consider a really big mule deer. Uh, seen a few of them. I've seen them down in in Mexico. I've seen them in Colorado. I've seen them in New Mexico and in uh Oh my gosh. I mean, there's, there's some of those deer that just even thinking about them just almost brings chills to me about the size that they were. Years ago, I was hunting in northern New Mexico around San Antonio Mountain. We were there, I was there as a guest of the New Mexico Game Department. I used to help them out on some projects every once in a while. And, and when I worked for the Texas Sports and Wildlife Department in return, they would, they would put me on a hunt somewhere where, we were up on a ridge hunting elk as it worked. It was a late season elk hunt and uh, I'd seen some elk drop into a brushy draw and I kind of eased up on the ridge, kind of looked down into that brushy draw and when I did, I said, oh my God, I, it was so brushy. And I jumped this animal and he was moving through the brush. Really all I could see was the tips of his antlers through all this brush. 
and I got shooting 270 and I got on I was just following the movement kind of like if you did seeing cartoons or whatever where or maybe you've seen it in real life where there's really tall grass and you can see the grass kind of move and you know there's something underneath there and well that's the way this was but I could see the the antler tips and I'm following this animal, following this animal, and just as it steps out, I am anticipating it to be just a nice elk, you know, a really nice six by six. It's probably about 35, 40 inches wide, and, and uh, you know, just the tips of his antlers that I've seen, and I'm, I'm following it through the scope, and this animal comes out on the other side and almost pulled the trigger, and then I realized it wasn't an elk. It was a mule deer. This mule deer was probably probably 38 inches outside from the, and I'm talking about the tips of his of his back tines there, and top tines that I could see, and he had unbelievable mass. He had he had a drop tine on the right side, and he stopped, walked out in the open, turned around and looked at me, and and I'm going, oh my gracious, I cannot believe this. If only it were mule deer season instead of elk. Why couldn't they put me on a mule deer hunt instead of an elk hunt? The, the mule deer season obviously was closed, and I watched this deer walk away, and, and even today, I'll, I'll be somewhere and I'll start thinking about mule deer, and that one comes to mind. There's another one that uh, comes to mind, too. Then this one was down in Mexico. I mentioned seeing one of the largest mule deer I've ever seen. It, it probably is the largest typical. I was down there hunting coos deer and, uh, on uh, Jesus Fembris' place, Rancho Grande. And, and Jesus has got a lot of mule on his property, and he had a oh about a 200-acre irrigated uh field that where every night mule deer would come in or all day they'd probably stay there but every night the mule deer would come in there to feed we drove to the far back side of his property and no sooner we did we saw a mule deer that was just the by far the biggest most impressive typical i've ever seen and we followed this deer was moving toward the uh toward the field and so we were just kind of zigzagging in the vehicle across pastures and we saw this deer numerous times, and so we got some really good looks at, at, at this deer. So I, I know pretty close to what he was, but this deer was a typical five by five, including brow tines, not a kicker, not anything else, just as slick as they can be. The antlers were bigger around pretty much all the way throughout the rack, as bigger around and bigger than the ear base, which is about, probably seven inches or so and, and spread wise oh he was as probably 40 inches outside he was as wide as antlers were as wide as essentially his body was was long from his shoulders to his backside so he was well over 30 you know 36 38 maybe even that 40 inches his uh, his front tines were longer than he was through the depth of his body from the from the brisket to the withers. Uh, his back tines were nearly twice that long, and they split about five six inches, maybe eight inches off the off of where they came off the main beam. He had brow tines unlike any mule deer I've ever seen. And brow tines, usually mule deer generally don't have real long brow tines, or most of them don't. Occasionally you'll see one that's got, you know, three inch brow tines, but these brow tines were probably five, six inches long, almost as long as the inside of his ear. So that would be about six, seven inches. Um, usually in, in looking at, at mass, one of the first things I do is I compare the circumference or the diameter, if you will, of the main beam and of the points to the eye. <clears throat> Mule deer and whitetail both have uh, uh, their eye, and if you did a circumference of it, is about four, four inches, maybe a little bit bigger in some, maybe a little bit smaller in others, but it's about an inch across, and so that makes it about, I've measured a lot of them, and, and they usually run right at four inches well. The mass on this buck, the, the tips were as big around as, as what this deer was uh, as, and his eyes were. I mean, he was just a phenomenal deer. That deer came into that field. We watched him in that field that afternoon just a little bit, and uh, 
he had a mule deer hunter coming in the next day and so we got back to camp and uh he was supposed to come in that night of course they went out and looked for this deer for the next eight days and never again never again saw him evidently he was just one of those deer that was passing through or he was a local deer that was just a super super secretive uh i'm not sure which the case was i do know if if I'd had a gun and and it'd been okay with with Jesus, I would have been pulling the trigger on this deer because I've never seen the likes of him, even in, in looking at some of the really big mule deer racks. Years ago, a dear friend of mine who's since passed away, Homer Say, collected mule deer antlers, and a lot of those were in, ended up being put into various museums. But if you're ever through the uh, have an opportunity to stop at the Cabela store in Kansas City. Go back into the back where they've got the the uh, the dioramas and all those kind of set up, and there you will find the biggest mule deer in the world, the biggest collection of big mule deer antlers. And most of those at one time Homer had collected, and uh, almost every one of those racks I've in the years past when he was collecting those, I got a chance to hold in my hand, which is how I can finally and actually see what antlers look like. I tell people, they'll tell me about a particularly big antler or set of antlers, and, and I go, oh, that's really nice, but until I can really put my hands on them and, and feel them to, to where I can see in actuality how wide they are, how massive they are, how tall they are, the number of points they have, all those kind of things. <clears throat> I tell people, well, I've not really ever seen them until I get a chance to do that. But please, if you ever get a chance to do that, go through Kansas City and go by the Cabela store. And uh, I think you'll be unbelievably impressed if you like mule deer. Um, they're, they're, I've never seen the likes of, of a collection that, that even comes close to that. Occasionally, they would pull and make replicas of some of those antlers, and you'd see them in some of the other Cabela's, now Bass Pro Stores as well, too. But not as a whole, as a collection there, will you ever see anything even close to those things, even some of the, the traveling things that go on and about. But uh, so there's nothing more impressive than a big mule deer to me. They're they're probably the premier game animal in North America. There's so even where there's a lot of big mule deer, there's so very few of them. And these days, they have for whatever reason through predators, through habitat, through you know the mule deer's kind of taking it on the chin a little bit. And thankfully, the mule deer foundation is making inroads through some of the things that they're doing to counteract a lot of this, but. At a time many years ago, there was a, a time in Colorado when you could take three mule deer. I had cousins that hunted up there during that time frame, so I know that to be the case. And the mule deer that they shot were all bigger, much bigger than the by far the average mule deer that you find today. And uh, hopefully one of these days we can get back to that situation, and maybe at least in a, in a, in a small way. But these days, as I mentioned too, if you want to try to take a really big mule deer, you better start applying for it about 10 to 15 years for that permit before you uh, think you might be able to hunt them. You might get lucky and, and draw a permit early, but the, oh my God, the chance of those premium tags that they have available these days of drawing those, unless you've been involved in the drawing system for years, are pretty close to nil and none. Uh, there are some private land permits that are sold every year in, in some of the states that uh, have become fairly expensive. And uh, But if you save up the money and, and uh, all that kind of thing, they can be bought. And there are also things like governor's tags and commissioner's tags that are issued every year. And, uh, you know, the best place to do that is to, to try to get in touch with the Mule Deer Foundation and find out what the the Western Expo, when that's going to be, and, and uh, they'll have an auction there. And, of course, that's a great place to find uh, outfitters that outfit for mule deer. And, and, of course, DSC Commission is another one of those places that we have every year in January. My gosh, we'll have some really outstanding mule deer show up there as well in different people's booths uh, and that outfit 
from Mexico all the way up into to Canada. There's some areas in Canada that are still producing some really nice mule deer. The area that I hunt with the Ron Nemechek with uh, North River Outfitting for whitetails, they're kind of north and I guess that's a little bit west of uh, Edmonton. There used to be some really big mule deer in that country, and the last times I've been up there, if you see a, a four-corn mule deer, or and I'm talking about maybe a, or a three-by-three three that's not all that fantastic, but just kind of a nice deer, that's a really big deer for that area now. But uh, there are some mule deer in, in Alberta that are extremely big, and just to the south, kind of in that lower part of the, of the province. The future of the mule deer is is tough to say, but with as I said, the efforts of hunters, conservation groups like DSC and DSC Foundation, of course the Mule Deer Foundation, we're making some inroads to bring the mule deer and keep keep the mule deer where he is and bring the mule deer back. And I think that's kind of where we need to look at is is what can we do to bring the mule deer back and and. Uh, you know, we've lost habitat. We're going to continue losing habitat for mule deer and those kind of areas, particularly in the west, the northern part, you know, kind of the Rocky Mountains. The Rocky Mountains have kind of become a place where everybody wants to go to. And we're dealing with, with states now that don't understand the necessity of, of proper management of habitat, proper management of the species. Hopefully we can change some of that, and hopefully we can change some of the the policies regarding um, wolf introductions and those sort of things. We're finding out that wolves and black bear and, and grizzlies and, and coyotes and bobcats and those things we've known for years that yeah, they do eat mule deer and they eat mule deer fawns and they eat grown mule deer. And in those areas where we have an increased population of mountain lions which are increasing across the western landscape and even moving into the east and, and uh, now they're showing up a whole lot more down the southeast as well too. What happens in, in those western states where you have mule deer where you also have a whole lot of coyotes a lot of times, the uh, lion will make a kill and usually that lion would, eat off, would have eaten off that kill for say maybe a week. And uh, before it went out and started looking for another one. Well, now with the increased coyote population, what happens is lion makes a kill, gets one meal off of it, and guess what? Coyotes move in, they eat it up, lion's got to go make another kill, so we're compounding the situation. Again, that's one of the reasons that some of these areas where we really need to control the, the coyote population and, and really to do something with the, with the mountain lion population as well, too. And some areas, even black bear, are becoming a, a potential or are a predator on uh, mule deer fawns in particular. So need to look at all those things and try to take a common sense approach. Do we want to get rid of all the predators? No, heaven no. Uh, predators have a place and they, we need predators. Do we need as many predators as we have? Nope, we really don't. We need to manage them like we would and should manage the, the other species that we have available out there that are part of the landscape, that are part of that environment and part of that ecosystem. So but we need to take a common sense approach to all those kind of things and, and uh, realize that hunting plays such a great important part in these type of things because hunters are the ones who are paying for the conservation. And I know some people go, oh yeah, sure they do. But, and over the years, as, as a wildlife biologist who's worked on a lot of different properties, including properties for mule deer, what we've seen is as we've improved the habitat for mule deer, guess what? Songbirds, all the little mammals, uh, game birds, all the different things, and particularly the plant species themselves, so greatly benefit from, from a hunting program or a program where hunting is involved as far as the management program is concerned. We don't need to be preservationists. And if you try to preserve something, uh, that doesn't really accomplish a whole lot. We need to be conservationists, which means a conservationist simply means the wise use of, and the wise use of based on scientific data rather than emotions that so often people get caught up in. The, the, the wildlife in a state does not need, it needs to be managed for the benefit of, of the people that live there, 
but it needs to be managed based upon sound wildlife management principles. And again, hunting play is very important to that. It doesn't need to be maintained or doesn't need to be managed by policies set by the public who has really no idea in some instances. Not everybody is that way, but there's certainly a fair number of people out there that deal with uh, uh, emotions rather than real life. And to manage mule deer properly and for managing mule deer properly means to have hunting, as I mentioned, to to put an economic benefit on these so that we can use that as a means of, of keeping that population there and expanding the habitat where we can or improving the habitat. Habitat for wildlife in particular, mule deer seems to be shrinking. So that means we have to more intensively manage that habitat that remains and to try to figure out how to ways we can connect these little pockets of habitat if you will. In the future we're going to talk about a lot of different things as I mentioned I'm getting ready to go on a predator hunt and maybe a little bit of a turkey hunt and meeting with uh, this this coming week with uh, Gary Robertson with Burnham Brothers Game Calls, his son Steve and we're going to film some things for Cornivore TV and then I'm also meeting with uh, Dave Fulson with Safari Classics with his cameraman Cameron Kunzer and we're filming some segments for uh, for Trijicon's World of Sports and Field which is a TV show I've started doing some shows for and you'll start really seeing those crop up this year I did uh, did a mule deer hunt for them and got a bunch of other hunts planned for them this this coming year Two, I want to invite you. I finally set up a, a, a YouTube channel. It took me forever, but it's Larry Wysoon Outdoors, and it's just getting started. I'm going to post a lot of different things here, uh, including possibly some podcast things as well. But uh, uh, some of the shows that I do with Luke Clayton and Jeff Rice are going to appear there at Sportsman's Life, and I'm going to try to pull some of the old shows that I did from years ago. And now, beyond that, I've, I'm taking my camera and I'm filming a lot of short segments of involving hunts, doing tips, and, and those kind of things. And things that I've learned over the year about, uh, over the years, I guess I should say, not this year, but uh, things that I've learned over the years. So I would ask that if, if you into those kind of things, that you please have a look at my YouTube channel. Again, that's Larry Wysoon Outdoors. It's the uh, same as my Instagram handle, and you can get in touch with me there. And, and uh, also at Facebook at Larry Wysoon Outdoors. And let me know some of the things that you'd like to hear about and uh, maybe even write about. I'm still doing a lot of writing. So, you know, please try to get in touch with me, and, and I'll do my best where I can to respond as, in as quickly a manner as, as I can on a personal basis. But also I'll take certainly in consideration and try to do those things that, that you out there, our listeners and our viewers and our readers, would like to hear about. So... Got to go pack up, got to go load up a couple of Ruger rifles, and there are several Ruger rifles and handguns and a whole bunch of horny ammo, and I've got a new Trijicon scope that I'm going to mount on a, uh, on a 280 Ackley improved bolt action rifle that I just got, a Ruger 7.7, and, and uh, a couple of other guns that I'm getting ready to take out there with me to hunt hogs, to hunt coyotes, and, and uh, all those other kind of good things. So truly look forward to you joining me right here on DSC's Campfires with Larry Weissen here next week and the following weeks to, as well. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. DSC's Campfires with Larry Weissen has also been brought to you by Texas Wildlife Association. Working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas raised hunting products. The Scent Gods. Can attract boots for the trails less traveled. Voigt, the finest in hunting gear. Pyramid Air for all things air gun. And Ripcord Rescue Travel Protection.